Now tonight, we're going to go for one more night of history relative to the English translation as we examine the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And then after tonight, we're going to shift our focus and turn to other matters of detail relative to translation, the process itself. But tonight, the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, and mainly we're talking here about the Word of God as it has been translated in the modern era. Now, this is, I guess, uh, maybe potentially the least exciting of this series of studies, at least maybe I shouldn't announce that at the beginning, but, uh, but per perhaps so because it deals with some things that many of us can remember. And so it's not that, that far out of, out of reach for us, and so it may be some of it familiar, but I don't think all of it is, and so we'll cover all of what we have to cover tonight and trust that it will be of benefit to all. So the era of modern translations. You know, if you look it up in Wikipedia, Wikipedia indicates that there are at least 87 English translations of the whole Bible that were done in the 20th century. So it's not going to be possible tonight for you and me to review all of that, and I don't know if it would really be profitable to do so, even if we tried. But throughout the 20th century, and extending back into the 19th century as well to some extent, there were individuals, Catholic groups, and Protestant groups, and individuals, and people, and organizations who issued various translations of the scriptures. Now then, I don't think all of these are worthy necessarily worthy of our notice, but on the other hand, I think some of them are, and I think they are worth considering and taking a serious look at, because I think a lot of people believe that all modern versions are the same. They're all the same. If they aren't the old version that we grew up on, then all of the others are the same. And the sameness basically centers around the fact that they are a compromise. They are not only a compromise, perhaps, but even a corruption of the purity of the Bible. It's that old idea that goes even all the way back to 1611 that if it's modern, it's bad. Remember last night, we, or the night before, no, last night we pointed out that the King James translators argued that even though their translation was new, it was a valid and important work that they were doing. The very fact that they made such an argument indicates that the, the newness of the King James translation in 1611 made it controversial, and many people thought it was bad because it was new. And now that it's 400 years old, we think it's the only thing that can be good because it's old. Well, many things differentiate the modern versions and make some better than others. So we can't just rope them all together into one group. And I might put it another way, some are much worse than others. Meaning, I don't endorse them all and I don't necessarily think that even all of them are really necessary, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. But let's begin tonight with just a quick overview of the centuries following 1611. Between the years 1611 and 1870, there were no official efforts to improve or revise the authorized version or the King James Version, although a lot of people said that it needed to be done. You can find records all the way back into the 1700s, only 160 years after the version was first issued in which people were saying, you know, there needs to be a revision. There needs to be an improvement. There needs to be an, an update, maybe is the better word. Now, 
However, there were many unofficial versions made by a lot of individuals. Especially you can turn through commentaries that were made in the 1700s and in the 1800s and you'll find that different individuals within their commentaries issued a translation, a fresh translation, and based their commentary on that. I also find that there were other translations such as Daniel Mace in 1729, Edward Harpool in 1768, and Rodolphus Dickinson in 1833. Alexander Campbell in 1826 issued a version that he titled The Living Oracles. Now Alexander Campbell didn't translate it. He didn't make a translation. What he did was use the translations within the biblical commentaries of two scholars by the name of Philip Doddridge and George Campbell. George was no relative to Alexander. For nearly two and a half centuries then, uh, the King James Version reigned absolutely supreme with all of these little uh, efforts sort of nipping at the heels, but really had no real effect on the King James translation. This was true until the late 19th century, and really the 1880s. And the 1880s is where we really see the beginning of the era of the modern versions. People call it the modern versions. And it became, it's because they were made in the modern era in the last couple of hundred years. Okay, now, some of these names that I'm going to present tonight get a little confusing. So I'm gonna try to help make them clear and help us to get a be able to get our mind around some of these very similar names of these translations. And it's confusing, I realize. The first of these was called the revised version. And revised means that it's taking something older and revising it. And that something older was the King James Bible. What you're looking at here is an image of the, uh, 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 the upper house of uh, the Convocation of Canterbury here. In February, of 10, uh, February 10th of 1870, the upper house of the Convocation of Canterbury moved to make an official revision of the authorized version or the King James Bible. This is in England, this is uh, the Church of England, and this is the same institution that formulated and carried out the work of the King James Version. So they saw themselves as the rightful heirs the owners of that version and took it upon themselves to revise it. So later that year, 1870, both houses adopted the resolution and a team of British and American scholars was arranged, both on both sides of the ocean. Scholars were arranged and they worked separately, of course, on opposite consonants, working on the translation process. And so these 30 scholars began work on October 4th, 1872. And then nine years later, they issued the New Testament published on May 17, 1881 of the revised version. It is estimated that there were about three million copies sold in England and in America the first year. Now you wanna get a feel of how a different world we live in today. I wish I would have looked up and recalled, I've looked it up, but I don't recall the exact details, but when the New Testament of the revised version was published in England in 1881, uh, the whole thing was transmitted via telegraph to America and was published in full in one of the major newspapers. I don't remember if it was the Chicago 
Tribune or the New York Times, one of those papers published the whole thing, the New Testament, in the newspaper as it had been transmitted by telegraph in 1881, if you can imagine that. So then later, the whole Bible was published in May 1885, and it came to be called then the Revised Version. Sometimes in some books or some preachers you'll hear it referred to as the British Revised Version because it was mainly put forward by the British. And this is the first full-scale revision officially of the King James Version. So tonight throughout the course of our lesson, I'm going to build a little diagram here that is going to start with these tiers down here at the bottom, and we're gonna build blocks on top of this thing and show you the relationship of the various revisions that were made then, starting with the RV, and then throughout the 20th century up to the present day, even into the 21st century. So we start here at the bottom by placing this block at the bottom with the King James Version of 1611. And the revised version that I just mentioned is essentially founded upon it. It purports to be a revision of the KJV. All right, so that begins our diagram. Now let's go back to our list. Okay, we mentioned the revised version, and I mentioned a few minutes ago that it's a British thing, but likewise there were American scholars who worked on it over at Princeton University, and, and I believe that's where they were, as I recall, and they worked on the translation in America as well. Well, you know what the British and Americans do. We always talk about the differences in the way we use the English language. Of course, the British, they kind of have a claim on that because they had it first, right? But the Americans have their way of using English, and so the, British revi the American revisers had certain renderings that they thought would be more adaptable or more fitting for an American reading audience. So they wanted to publish what they called and did publish and did call the American Standard Version. This gentleman here is named Philip Schaff. Philip Schaff was head of the American RV Committee, uh, that helped translate the, the, the RV translation. But the American committee, as I said, preferred renderings that differed from the British committee, but officially they agreed to wait 15 years to publish the American revision of the same translation. And they did, actually 16 years later, on August 26, 1901. And this translation has come to be called the American Standard Version. You can see why American is put on, because it's an American version of the revision done by the British in the 1880s. So let's go back to our table here. We can see then that based on the revised version, then really the American Standard Version is really not even based on it. It's really just uh, an issue of the same translation with the, the American preferences published and they duly waited for a 15-year period to do that. So what you end up with then is this title page, which is not anything like the title page of the King James Bible from 1611 that we showed you the other night. This one indicates that the Holy Bible defined and explains itself as the Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments translated out of the original tongues being the version set forth in 1611 and then it goes on to say, compared with the most ancient authorities and revised in 1881 to 1885, newly edited by the American Revision Committee, A.D. 1901. 
So 122 years ago, this translation was published to the reading public in the United States of America. Now, as it turns out, the Revised Version and the American Standard Version never won the hearts of the reading public. Now, even though everyone recognized that the King James Bible was rather outdated and needed some revision, this one just didn't quite take the hearts of the people. And we may ask the question, well, why is that? Well, there may be a number of reasons, and I can list here a couple. Number one, the language was, in a sense, not really updated. The American Standard Version and the Revised Version still use thee, thou, thee, thine, thy, and so forth. It still used the old archaic verbal forms, hast, taketh, seeth, etc. That was not really an update in that sense anyway. And then number two, one of the big criticisms of the translation was that it was too literal. Now, a lot of people really thought that was a great thing. Many people praised it for that. And it was indeed the most, probably, I guess you could say, the most literal translation, official and large-scale translation that has ever been issued. And consequently, its language is very stilted and wooden, and hence did not win the hearts of the American public. As the famous London Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said of the New, Rever New Revision, he said, it's strong in Greek, weak in English. And that's a correct assessment. The Bishop of Durham also said, while it is beyond all praise as an aid to study, meaning it's a very literal translation and easy to make direct comparisons between it and the Greek text. While it's beyond all praise for that, he says it seriously lacks that English felicity which should entitle it to take the place of the authorized version in our national heart. Well, in spite of this, the RV and ASV marked the beginning of a break with the AV, the authorized version and this, of course, opened the door for more revisions later on and made it possible because that trail had now been blazed. But we go back to our list. After these two, which are really the same version with slight differences, uh, we have a third version, the Revised Standard Version. You see how this gets complicated. Revised Standard Version is really a revision of the American Standard Version. That's all that the, the title indicates. Okay, so this, the Revised Standard Version, is an American undertaking, but it's not the American government or any official American church. It's an organization. In 1928, uh, the International Council of Religious Education obtained the copyright of the American Standard Version of 1901. About nine years later, in 1937, this council voted to authorize a revision of the American Standard Version, and it was published as the Revised Standard Version. So think of it like this. If the title is confusing, think of it as the American Standard Version Revised, hence Revised Standard Version. Okay? So it was published in 1946 with great fanfare, and then the whole Bible was issued in 1952, and it did indeed update much of the language. Like any other work, however, it was both praised and criticized. 
Now, much of the criticism was directed toward the fact that it was initiated by the International Council of Religious Education, which was, everybody knows, is a theologically liberal organization. And many people came out in strong opposition to it because of the liberal theology of some of the translators, and many conservative groups literally hated this translation. And much of it had to do with the way they translated Isaiah 7 and verse 14, the word Alma, as young woman instead of virgin, and the trouble that ran into when you get to Matthew's quote in Matthew chapter 1, applying that passage to Jesus. Now, that point aside, however, the translation actually is a good translation in many ways and in a lot of places. It's just that there were some things that were not acceptable to the conservative groups, and that would have been us had we been alive at that time, and some of us were. Um, but uh, the fact is that a lot of it, it really is not a bad translation at all. That aside, let's go ahead and build our tower here a little bit more although now I'm going to narrow it down a little bit to make more room for other revisions that are not connected to each other. So the Revised Standard Version then was issued in 1952, and it was purportedly a revision of the American Standard Version before it. Okay, back to our list. Then we add another one where we get more confusion of names, potentially, because now we have what has been titled the New American Standard Bible. Okay, what this is, is again purporting to be a revision of the American Standard Version. So they added the word new on the front and changed the word version to Bible. Now the reason the New American Standard Bible came out or why people, you know, why there was a move to create it was a conservative response to the, new, to the Revised Standard Version, number three. It was considered liberal, as we pointed out, because of the organization that was behind it. And so another organization came along and said, well, we're going to revise the American Standard Version, but this time we're going to do it in a conservative way. We're going to do it the right way. And so uh, the New American Standard Version was first sponsored by the Lockman Foundation of La Habra, California, and there were 58 anonymous scholars who worked on it. They were anonymous. It was kind of controversial. I can remember back oh, several years ago reading about this before, before anyone knew who these 58 scholars were. And uh, it was kind of con uh, controversial because well, who, it's like, what are you trying to hide if you don't tell us who these people are? And that was kind of the feeling. But I think the reason for it was is because they didn't want personalities connected to the translation. They wanted the translation to speak for itself and not have personalities involved and, and associated with it, as was the case with the RSV earlier. Well, anyway, like I said, it's a conservative response to the RSV, and the whole Bible was published in 1971. In fact, it was widely accepted, and conservative seminaries across the land adopted it as their official translation to be used in the courses of those seminaries. So, building our tower again, we're going to add now over here the New American Standard Version. It's just a little higher on the chart because 1971 is later than 1952. That's my logic in building it this way. And then hurriedly jumping through a series here. After 1971, the New American Standard Version then was issued in a further update 
1977, then in another oh, 18 years, in 1995, the New American Standard Bible was issued again in the 1995 New American Standard Version. And up until very recently, this was the latest rendition of the NASB, and I put a little green circle, or a little green square, or a rectangle, I should say, around it here, simply to highlight it as a version that I can comfortably recommend to members of the church. I can't say that of every version, but this is one that is a recent one, fairly recent, that I can. Now, after 1995, another update of the NASB came out just three years ago in the year 2020. And so we have what we call the NASB or the NAS 95, and then we have now the NAS 20. This is kind of the labels that they go by, it looks to me like, based on what I've seen. So NAS 20 and NAS 95. Now the NAS 20 is a very good update. There's only one caveat, and I'm not sure that I would even necessarily call it a caveat, maybe a caveat with a lowercase c, and that is the use of gender-inclusive language. Now, as soon as you say that, that makes people very nervous because they think that means that the, uh, the translators want to call God she. Well, that's not what it means. Let me Ill illustrate what gender-inclusive language means. I invite you to consider Romans 1 and verse 13 as just one example. This is the New King James Version. Paul wrote now, or in the translation it says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you. All right, let me digress just a little here and point out the fact, this is not gender inclusive that I'm going to say just now, but the word brethren is proof that the NKJV really isn't all updated language because brethren is an old-fashioned word. I don't have any brothers in my family. I have two sisters. But if I did, I wouldn't call them brethren. I would say, you know, my the name of my brethren are Bill and Smith, uh, Bill and George, or whatever. We would call them brothers. And so, really, if it's a real update, they would have made it a 20th century word or a 21st century word and said, now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, but I often planned to come to you. But whatever. Either way, brethren or brothers is a masculine term grammatically and formally speaking. But the argument is that when Paul uses the word brethren or brothers, he oftentimes means it in the sense of the whole church, male and female. So that in a sense, it does mean brothers and sisters. So the New American Standard Version 20, the NAS 20, has used gender-inclusive language to say, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often planned to come to you. Let me give you another example. Here is Psalm 1 and verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. If we look at the NASB 20 of the same passage, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It's gender-inclusive in the sense that they use a word here that is inclusive of both men and women. And this is done throughout. Now, I, don't, I think this is perfectly legitimate. In fact, I think it's very good in a lot of ways. The trouble with it is, is when you 
come to certain passages, and not my point tonight to study gender-inclusive translations, I'm just illustrating it here, but there are certain passages where it does seem to run aground of other considerations depending on the context of any given particular passage. But I'm just illustrating what we're talking about whenever, oh, I didn't read it to you, or I didn't show it to you, there it is. Um, I'm just showing you uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about a gender-inclusive translation with the NASB 20 up there. Now, one more revision to the New American Standard Bible 1995 was done two years ago, and that is the LSB done in 2021. This is called the Legacy Standard Bible. This is an excellent translation. This one does not use gender-inclusive language. And interestingly, it translates in the Old Testament the name of God. It transliterates it as Yahweh, or we might more commonly know of Jehovah, rather than translating it as Lord. And if you want to get an impression of the name of God as found in the Old Testament, get a copy of the LSB and start reading it and see how many times God's personal name appears in the Old Testament. Okay, so these two versions I think that I can comfortably recommend, the NAS 95 and the LSB 2021, as good formal equivalence translations for the study and reading of the Scripture. Let's go back to our list. I've just added the Legacy Standard Bible. Then number six, we come upon a work called the New Revised Standard Version. So basically what they're doing now is they're taking number three, the Revised Standard Version, and adding the word new to it. Now remember, the Revised Standard Version was originally published by the, the theologically more liberal element of the religious world, the International Council of Religious Education. And so the new Revised Standard Version tastes of that same flavor and has some of the same characteristics as uh, or the, same, uh, the same theological bias, shall we say, as the Revised Standard Version. And it's for that reason, then, on our chart that I go ahead and put it here, as it was initially published in 1989. Uh, it was published here in 1989 uh, as a revision of the Revised Standard Version. Now, this translation, just like the NASB, also uses gender-inclusive language, but being more on the liberal end of the spectrum, this translation takes the concept of gender inclusivity farther than I believe is legitimate. And it's because of the, the basic underlying bias of the revision itself. Okay, so in general, I recommend, could recommend here the green boxes if you're interested in very recent translations. While all this is going on, business people are very astute, you know. They have to be to keep the business afloat. And there's a company called Thomas Nelson Publishers who saw in no, the later, uh, just after the mid-20th century, an opportunity in all of this. What Thomas Nelson Publishers saw was a business opportunity. That's what they are. They're in the business of business, right? And so they thought that many King James Bible readers would like an updated King James Version. And so 
they published what they called the New King James Version, and many of our folks have adopted it as the text out of which they read, study, and preach. The, King the New King James in excuse me, imitates the King James style and phrasing, but in somewhat updated English, but I will add, not completely. Like I said a while ago, brethren is not an updated word. Brothers is, but the King James, New King James never uses the word brothers in the sense that I've described it. Also, it continues to word, use the word bishop in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Bishop is certainly a King James Version word, but it was a politically charged word during seven, the 17th century. Today, it's in the New King James simply because the New King James is imitating the Old King James. The Old King James used it because it was a Church of England production. It ought to be overseer if you want a real update, but that's beside the point. It was published, the New King James, in 1982. So, adding it to our list as number seven, and then on our chart, I'm going to have to do something a little different here because I've built this thing out but now the bottom block is too small. This illustrates how that I was, I was building these slides. I didn't anticipate that this change would be needed, but I didn't want to go back and rebuild the former slides, so I'm just going to fix it with this one. We're going to take that block out, and we're going to make the King James Version block bigger so I can make the point here. And that is that the New King James Version bypasses all of these other translations and rests solely back on the King James Bible. And so, of course, I can recommend the New King James Version. It's the one I've preached out of since about 1997. So I feel pretty comfortable with it, although I can see lots of flaws in it, part of which I've already mentioned to you just now. Okay. Another thing was going on while all this was happening, actually a little earlier than some of what I just showed you in the, in the chart with the blocks, and that is <clears throat> the New York Bible Society. While all this was going on, the New York Bible Society in 1968 agreed to sponsor a new translation, but it was not going to be a revision of any previous translation. It was going to be a fresh translation from scratch. Now there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing, in fact. There's not any problem with that per se, to have a completely fresh translation. There's no law in the scriptures that says that a new translation must be a revision of the King James Version. There's no law in the scriptures that says that the scripture must be only the King James Version. You can't prove that with the Bible. But this was called the New International Version. Now, it was controversial, still is. The New Testament was published in 1973, and the whole Bible was published in 1978. Now, one of the things that made it controversial and still to this day makes it controversial, is what is referred to as dynamic equivalence translation. Now I'm going to talk about dynamic equivalence translation tomorrow night when we talk about translation philosophies, because translation philosophy is part of what's driving all of these multi multiplied additions and accumulations of translation. 
And so I think to understand what's going on is to understand in part what dynamic equivalence means, but we'll discuss that more tomorrow night and the next night. Okay, so the, the New International Version, where does it appear in all of this? Well, we really just kind of have to put it over here to itself because it's not a revision of the King James and it's not a revision of a revision of a revision of anything else up here on this chart. It came out in full in the whole Old and New Testaments in 1978. Then a revision was done, which was really to correct some mistakes, in 1985. And then another revision was done again in the year 2011. When the 2011 edition came out, there were some very positive things in my mind. Because some of the big criticisms and I think fitting criticisms of the New International Version was the rendering of sinful nature in the 1978 and 1985 renditions uh, for the word flesh. They translated it sinful nature in about 17 places. And there are some theological implications or some doctrinal baggage that attaches to that phrase that makes it a little unsettling. Interestingly, in 2011, in the 2011 edition, and I just discovered this last year, I didn't know this, that in 2011, the 2011 edition actually eliminated all but two of those. They went back to the rendering flesh. But one of the things they also did was gender-inclusive language, such as you see in the NAS 20 and the New Revised Standard Version of 1989. We find then gender-inclusive language also in the 2011. 11 version. So if you want kind of a gradation here, the New Revised Standard Version of 1989 takes gender-inclusive language to its, really to an extreme. The uh, New International Version, well let me go on to the opposite end of the spectrum, the NASB 20 uses it conservatively, and the New International Version, like it is on a lot of things, is right in the middle on the gender-inclusive language. Let me just give you another example, just to kind of help solidify in our mind what we're talking about here. In Acts 11 and verse 29, the New King James, which is not necessarily gender-inclusive, says, the disciples, each according to their, his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. The uh, 2011 NIV says, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Did they send that food or help or money only for the men? Or did it also, was it also given for the women as well? That's kind of the argument and the logic behind this. Okay, now then we add therefore the eighth item, the New International Version. I'm going to add one more here, and actually it's two. I'm just going to tack the last one right on at the end. Uh, We've got here now all of these versions sort of put on this slide here. And so what I'm going to do, and in order to make room for what I need to make room for, I'm just going to clean this thing up a little. That doesn't mean all those versions went away. It just meant, means I need more room on my slide. The original RSV was 1952. Uh, the Revised Standard, oh no, there was a Revised Standard Version Edition in 1971. And then the English Standard Version was published as a revision of the Revised Standard Version in 2001. And the English Standard Version really is a conservative translation. It's an evangelical translation, I'm pretty sure, if I'm right about that. 
And uh, I think I can put a square around it as well. Now, there are a couple of issues that I, I'm question, I question, but then I do that with every one of them. And I suppose there's no way to get around that. So it's called the ESV. And a lot of our preachers, especially some of the younger preachers, have begun using the ESV. And it has a very strong flavor of the King James language. But it is a complete update as far as I'm aware and as far as I can tell. More so even than the New King James Version. So we'll add it on here at the end, the English Standard Version. And then I'm going to put on one more here, the Christian Standard Version which is kind of a halfway point in terms of translation philosophy. It's kind of a halfway point between, say, the ESV or the NASB, which is literal, and the, NA, uh, the NIV, which is more dynamic. And this one seems to kind of fall in the middle of those two and makes actually a very good result. But we just don't have time to go into all of this. I just wanted to give you this list here to kind of give you a sense of what the major versions are that are on the bookshelf at the store and where they came from and briefly what they're about and what differentiates them. And I haven't even touched the hem of the garment on what could be said. So these are the main ones. But these are not to mention all of these that have come out in the 20th century and maybe uh, one or two of them earlier than that, uh, where we have, like Wikipedia says, 87 of translations done in the 20th century. That's not to mention ones that have been done since then. Okay? So, as far as looking at these are concerned, these are the major translations that most of them you'll see on the shelves that... Uh, 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 that uh, when you go into the bookstore. Well, I'm going to end this up now as we finish up this part of our study on the history of English translation. Uh, I want to end up where, with a question, why so many versions? You know, the King James translator said, variety of translations is profitable for finding out of the sense of the scripture. That was the King James translators who said, variety of translation is a good thing. So, my, in the 21st century, we are a people who have at our disposal a variety of translation, and that's a good thing. But, I'll add this little personal opinion, if you ask me, we don't really need all these versions of the Bible. Do we? All of them? That slide I just showed you with multiple translations. Well, I suppose they're all got something in them of benefit. But I'm going to ask the question again, why so many versions? I'm going to let these two fellows, Mead and Gurry, answer the question from their book, Scribes and Scripture. Because I think they give a good overview of the reasons why there are so many versions of the Bible today. Number one, there is translation theory. This is our topic tomorrow night and will extend into our topic Friday night. Uh, translation theory means that different people and their constituents have different ideas about what the translation process really is and how you successfully and accurately trans some, translate something from one language into another. There are different schools of thought about that, and each school of thought wants to produce a translation that uses their school of thought to make a translation. So 
So translation theory is part of what drives it. Number two, changes in the English language. It's the very fact that the English language changed that caused the upper house of, the, uh, of Canterbury to uh, say we need to revise the King James Bible. And the English language continues to change. There are things, in fact, I won't spend time on it, but there are things in the 1952 Revised Standard Version that sounded perfectly fine in 1952, but believe it or not, are vulgar today, just 70 years ago. Kind of like those words we pointed out last night from the King James Bible that are vulgar today, but were not in 1611. But even since 1952, there is, I can think of one phrase in the Revised Version that is vulgar, but wasn't back then, even in 1952. Also, textual advances in the Greek and Hebrew. And this means Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and Greek and Hebrew language and our understanding of it and what it means and what each word means. Like I said, I think last night, if you think technology has advanced a lot in your lifetime, depending on how old you are, if you're as old as I am, you can look back and think about a lot of things that we have today that we didn't have when I was a boy, and it's technology. It's the advancement of, think a hundred years ago. If technology has advanced, and it has, I can assure you that our knowledge of the Greek text and the Hebrew text and how to translate and understand what the Hebrew and Greek means has also advanced with equal force. So that drives translation. If you learn more about what the original documents written by the inspired writers, what they said and what they actually, what the words actually were, then there's an impetus there to put that into translation and get that out to the people. The other thing, and this kind of gets more into the marketing area, and marketing is part of this, as number five, as we'll see in a moment, indicates, new audiences. It's all English speaking. We're talking only about English translation here. But many translations are directed toward different constituent readerships. Now, is that good? I don't know. It's just the way it is. And that's part of what drives translations. And then finally, simple as it is, money. And I don't necessarily use this as a point here. This is Mead and Gurry, and they don't either. They don't make this point to just say, well, little nasty, filthy lucre is what drives translations. That's part of it, I guess. But the point is that part of what drives translations is the fact that you've got publishing companies now that are behind the publishing of the Bible. And they want new products. And there's also, they want new products because what? And every one of us know about this because every one of us feel this way. Take it out of the realm of the Bible and put it in the realm of computers or iPhones or uh, new cars or the latest shoes. We love novelty. We love novelty. And you know what? A lot of people love novelty when it comes to the Bible and the publisher knows that. And so they start printing up Bibles. Well, after you've sold 10 million copies of a particular version, you've kind of saturated the market. And once you saturate the market, well, maybe what we need is another translation. One that has a flashier title. Or maybe comes out with this new twist on what the language is 
uh, best uh, expresses some idea, or whatever. You get, the you get the idea. Is that a good thing? Well, like everything in advancing technology, it has an upside and it has a downside. The invention of television had an upside, but it also had a downside. We're living with the moral consequences of that today. The invention of the iPhone had an upside, but it also has a downside. And the advancement of multiple translations, I guess in some sense, has an upside, but it also has a downside. And I think the downside of it is that it gets to the point where the, the whole religious mind is so saturated with so many different ways of saying the same thing that it kind of gets lost and diluted. And so that's why I said back some time back earlier in this lesson, it seems to me that all of this is not necessary to know the will of God. And that's why I encourage people to take two or three good formal equivalence translations and then use a couple of other maybe dynamic translations and read those together in order to come up with a good understanding of the teaching of the Bible.